This is a CBC podcast. Axe the tax. Axe the tax. Axe the tax. The Liberals may not have taken an axe to the carbon tax, but they are doing some surgery. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, we will ask the MP who helped drive those carbon price changes if they're fair to all Canadians, and whether this means that a core Liberal policy is weaker now. We're going to break down the move with two of Ottawa's sharpest journalists, and we're going to talk about how the Liberal caucus is split over the idea of a ceasefire in the Middle East. Plus, we'll meet a family who spent hundreds of thousands of dollars sending their dad overseas for brain cancer treatment. We'll ask the health minister why it's not available here. But first, are we seeing a carbon tax backtrack? The House is now in session. It's been described as a softening, a significant climb down and a flip-flop. On Thursday, the Prime Minister announced some changes to the carbon tax, a bigger rebate for rural Canadians, and a three-year pause on the tax on home heating oil. The Liberals say that's meant to give people time to switch to heat pumps that the government will help pay for. Justin Trudeau calls it doubling down on climate. One of the key people who pushed for these changes is Cody Blois. He's the MP for King's Hants in Nova Scotia, and he's the chair of the Liberal Atlantic Caucus. I spoke with him on Friday. Cody Blois, welcome to the House. Thank you, Catherine. Pleasure to be here. You have been working, I think, for months, in fact, to get these policies changed. Why was this so important to you? Look, at the end of the day, as I've said publicly a number of times, Catherine, I believe in the government's overall intent on carbon pricing and the importance of environmental progress. But when I look at the way that in which the federal backstop, so this is not the industrial price, but the price that is more downstream, I felt as though there had to be adjustments to better reflect regional and rural Canada. And the Prime Minister's announcement yesterday and the government's announcement, I think, is a tip in that right direction. Um, because at the end of the day, I felt the backstop, although the intent was right, policy had to be changed. And yesterday was an exactly, that's exactly what we did. One of the things you said when you described this change was we're finding equity in how we deliver programs. But baked into that is an acknowledgement that the government imposed something that wasn't equal, wasn't fair, isn't it? Well, look, at the end of the day, we launched this in 2019. We're now four years in. I don't think there was any malice or any uh, malcontent towards uh, rural Canada. And and again, others might look at this and say it was perfectly fair and equitable. But as a member of parliament that represents rural communities, I felt that the adjustments the government made yesterday were a step in the right direction to ensure greater equity under the programs, not only in a regional sense, there was a lot of focus on Atlantic Canada yesterday. But what I think was lost in the media coverage was the fact that this is good for rural Alberta. This is good for rural Ontario, Saskatchewan, Canadians under the federal backstop system that live outside cities will see a greater return, which I think makes up for their lived difference in the ability to actually change behavior. Now, you mentioned Alberta there. Alberta Premier Daniel Smith is one of the people who is actually raising questions about this. You're talking about the rural part of it, but of course, part of this is this three-year pause for people who use home heating oil. Premier Smith is one of the people saying, well, what about us? She said she's disturbed this break isn't extended to Albertans and Saskatchewan people who heat their homes with natural gas, adding, quote, are we not Canadians too? And she's not alone. Professor Andrew Leach, energy and environment economist, says the regional distribution is not fair. Why is a three-year break only for people who heat their homes one way fair? 
Look, at the end of the day, Catherine, the home heating oil that we're talking about is the Prime Minister reference, of course, from a carbon intensity is much more extreme than natural gas. And my my response to Premier Smith would be this. Last year, we announced a $250 million program through the Low Carbon Economy Fund that was for the entire country. So the Government of Canada has money on the table to help Albertans on home heating oil, which I take notice you're going to say is a less proportion than Atlantic Canada. Mm -hmm. But there are supports on the table to help Albertans who are still in that situation, particularly those that are in remote and northern communities in Alberta. But I think but- fundamentally, Cody Blois, people across the country who are going to say, wait a minute, sure, maybe it was more expensive, but fundamentally, these folks are getting a break under the program. And those folks are folks in your riding. I appreciate that. You're not a minister. But what do you say to the rest of the country who says, well, wait a minute, now it seems unfair to me. Well, I was going to say there is existing federal programs. So what was announced yesterday is also a $40,000 interest-free loan. So if there are Albertan households that want to reduce their reliance on natural gas, there are federal programs to do that today. There is federal dollars on the table to help Albertans who are on home heating oil to transition today. If Premier Smith wants to launch and work with the government of Canada to help those 90% of Albertan households reduce their reliance on natural gas towards a more environmentally friendly practice, I am sure the government of Canada would welcome that with open arms. And I would encourage her to reach out to the Prime Minister or Minister Wilkinson because that is exactly what we're willing to do. But, you know, Danielle Smith, in one breath, you know, talks about trying to have support to help people on natural gas, but then takes away the actual investment and support in Alberta to actually move towards renewables. So I just want the rest of the country to know there is existing programs. This is being launched as a pilot in terms of the enhanced home heating program in Atlantic Canada and other provinces, if they want to get on board, can absolutely do so. But I'm pleased to see the three Atlantic provinces work closely and it's going to make a difference. Okay, the critiques are not just about fairness. Some say this undermines the liberal carbon policy, uh, pricing policy altogether. I want to read you part of what the Canadian Climate Institute and an independent group that looks at climate policy had to say. Quote, the federal government's decision to temporarily exempt home heating oil from carbon pricing introduces uncertainty to Canadian climate change policy. It sends the signal to emitters and investors that policy can be weakened in the future. End quote. Uncertainty weakening. Surely it gives you pause to hear that some environmental groups are suggesting that this is hurting a key piece of the Liberal agenda. Catherine, I could read you the Ecology Action Centre statement, which is based in Halifax. And for your listeners that may not know, this is one of the preeminent environmental organizations in Nova Scotia and Atlantic Canada. They applauded yesterday's decision. And they actually said it was walking an important balance between affordability, but also putting programs in place to actually help people make that transition. The Prime Minister was very clear, this is a temporary pause. And I think at the end of the day, had the government just paused the carbon price on home heating without offering solutions to help people get off home heating oil, then you know what, I would actually resonate more with the argument that this was a step down on climate. But this was not a step down on climate. This was about creating regional equity in a national program yesterday. And it was offering concrete solutions to help people transition. And I would reference you to the Ecology Action Center. I would reference you to regional... No, no, Catherine, I I would reference you to regional environmental groups in Atlantic Canada who are applauding this decision. So you were the one, one of the MPs, negotiating with the government to change this piece of their climate policy. But your stance is this doesn't send the message that that climate policy is up for negotiation? 
No. Uh, look, uh, people are going to read into this different ways, but the prime minister has been very clear that at the end of the day, and again, Catherine, I would resonate with the argument more had the prime minister not announced an enhanced heat pump program and significant support to help people make the transition. Had we just exempted and left it at the door, I would buy a little bit more of the arguments that I'm hearing from climate institutes in the middle of the country. But at the end of the day, yesterday was solutions focused. It walked a really important line on leadership between affordability and climate. I mean, Canada is a compromise. And what was done yesterday was to make sure that we have equity across the country. And it's going to help people get off home heating oil, which is going to reduce emissions and help Canada's fight against climate. I, I, I mean, it's a, it's a win-win-win. Pierre Polyev was in your riding Thursday night, right after this news broke, holding an already planned Axe the Tax rally. I think we want to be clear to folks who are listening that he got pretty personal with you, Cody Blois. Now, the audio, unfortunately, is not great from that event, but I'm going to play you just a little bit to give folks a sense of, of what he was saying. Poor Cody Blois. He was bawling his eyes out on the phone today. <laughs> Begging the people for a little bit of help. Saying he said he's going to lose his job. Poor Cody Blois, he says. He's bawling his eyes out on the phone today, begging the PMO for a bit of help. He said he's going to lose his job. Mr. Polyev went on to say, uh, you wouldn't be able to pay your bills. You know how folks in Nova Scotia, Atlantic Canada feel. The argument, though, the political argument, putting the personal argument aside that he was making there, is that if people in your riding re-elect the Liberals in the next election, they know that the taxes are going to go up once this three-year pause on home heating oil is over. But if they re-elect him... The tax is gone. How do you counter that message? I want to say a couple of things, Catherine, to that. Uh, first of all, any suggestion that this was done to match the timing of Pierre Pauly of being in Atlantic Canada is completely false. You can go back and look at my advocacy publicly. This extends back a year and a half. There's very pleased as we get closer to winter uh, that the government announced this as an affordability measure and a supply side element. What I said yesterday in the press conference and what concerns me about Pierre Polyev is he is not offering any vision whatsoever on how he will help on environment. He's offering simplistic solutions. Look, everyone loves the idea. Oh, look, we'll just get rid of it. But he's not talking about the fact that there's more money that actually goes back to households than what they pay in. He's voting against legislation that matters to Atlantic Canada's clean energy future, which is actually on the supply side, which is kind of what he's signaling he would be about, and yet he votes against that. But he has pointed out that the Liberal government has voted against putting a pause or axing the tax on home heating oil. So he's looking at you and saying, well, you know, you're a hypocrite, and you're saying, well, he's not doing the thing. What I want to know, though, Cody Blois, were the Conservatives not right that people in your riding shouldn't be paying this tax on home heating oil right now? Do you not actually agree on that one point? Uh, Look, I agree that there had to be adjustments in the program. But what I want to differentiate, Catherine, is I've sat in the House of Commons for four years and I have not heard one single Conservative member of Parliament stand up and offer a tangible, concrete solution or adjustment to the national program. The Conservative Party does not want to be a single iota of carbon pricing anywhere in the country. I don't think they would dispute that, yeah. And, and, and I don't think that's the right approach. And so at the end of the day, what I've said very clearly is I believe the intent and the approach is the right one, but that we needed to make adjustments. There are lived realities in different parts of the country. And at the end of the day, what I will remind my constituents is this. As a member of parliament in the Atlantic Liberal Caucus, I moved and worked with my colleagues to adjust a national program that is going to ensure greater equity, not only in Atlantic Canada, 
but rural and regional Canada across the board. And at the end of the day, this government is offering concrete solutions to help people long-term make that transition. Pierre Polyev is not offering solutions. He is taking people's anxieties and fears. He's reflecting those back to people, driving up their anxiety, and offering no concrete solutions long-term. Catherine, the last thing I'll say, he's been the leader of the Conservative Party for one year. Point to me one iota of what he has put in place in terms of a vision, a plan, or any evidence that he even gives, um, (laughs) I better not swear, gives a rat's ass about climate and affordability. I don't see any evidence of that. This government's walking that line because they have to happen at the same time. Cody Boyce, appreciate your time today. Thank you for this conversation. Thanks so much, Catherine. Nova Scotia Liberal MP Cody Boyce. So obviously this issue is inspiring a lot of passion amongst politicians, but is it a good move? And what about another issue that has divided opinion in the Liberal caucus? The question of calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. To help us sort through it all, I spoke on Friday to Tonda McCharles, Parliamentary Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star, and Stuart Thompson, Editor-in-Chief of The Hub. Thank you both for being here. Good morning. Thank you. Stuart, I'm going to start with you. Why do you think the government felt compelled to announce these changes to the carbon tax now? Um, Well, I think this is a government that's on its heels. And I don't think I'm breaking any news with that analysis. (laughs) But I think this is interesting for two reasons. One is that this is directed at the Atlantic provinces. And we are possibly two years out from an election. The government, the Liberal government doesn't normally have to worry about Atlantic Canada two years before an election. Usually they're pretty secure about that area. So I think that tells you something about where they see themselves electorally. And for this government, reversing a policy or pausing a policy or whatever you want to call it, I think is a last resort. Pausing these policies, the climate policies that they got into power to do and that they spent a lot of political capital to get done, um, that tells you something about where they see themselves too. So I, I think this is a government that's in a bit of a hole and this is a defensive maneuver. So uh, I think we'll see probably a few more of these, but they're talking a lot about Pierre Polyev. I think they have to start offering a positive vision on top of that too. Tonda, we did see the prime minister trying to frame this as a positive move. No, we're doubling down on climate, he said. Um, Is this going to go any way towards fixing the problems that Stuart was just talking about? Well, it certainly may help some liberal fortunes in Atlantic Canada, because let's face it, I mean, the 32 seats there right now are more in jeopardy than they ever were. I mean, the liberal government needs a solid block of liberal support coming out of that region. If they have any hope of forming another government, minority or majority, and the majority is certainly not in the cards, I think, does it achieve what they set out to do? Look, I think it sends mixed signals on their commitment to the carbon pricing scheme. What it also does is sends a signal, I think, some of the critics have already said that it sends a signal to others that, oh, maybe they're open to modifying, softening some of the carbon pricing scheme. And that is a direct, you know, line of attack that the Conservatives have successfully used, it seems to me, certainly in the Atlantic region, but across the country. So will it achieve what they want to achieve? Look, if their main goal was um, shoring up their prospects electorally, that remains to be seen. We're at most two years out. We might only be a year out of an elect from an election right now. And I think that the, the carbon pricing scheme is something that a lot of Canadians are finally now really feeling the pinch on because it's hitting us everywhere. It's hitting us at the gas pump. It's heating people in their, in the, heating their homes. And uh, on a number of those levels, that's retail politics at its, at its most, I guess, uh, pressure points, isn't it? 
Stuart, we're talking about the impact on the seats in Atlantic Canada, but of course we've heard from voices elsewhere in the country on this. I'm thinking of, you know, Daniel Smith, Scott Moe, uh, Doug Ford has weighed in. And, and there is a sense of like, hey, they're getting a break. What about us and our home heating? Uh, this isn't fair. Do you think that critique has legs? Do you think that's something that's going to follow the government? Yeah, I mean, anyone with small children knows <laughs> that that has legs. Once you offer it up, I mean, they're going to keep asking for it. And that's how premiers work. They wouldn't be doing their jobs if they weren't doing that. So the, the premiers are the small children here, not the Canadians. <laughs> Got it. I don't think I'm the first one to use that analogy. Um, but I, I think also this opens up a whole avenue for Pure Polyab, too. And if you are a conservative strategist and you were given three wishes for the next election, I think you would ask three times that it be about the economy and it be about pocketbook issues. If you talk to conservatives who ran the 2021 campaign, they'll say that the demise of that campaign for them was that it became about COVID. It wasn't about what people were spending money on and what the government was spending money on. That is, I think, Pierre Polyev's lane right now is to just sit back and let that issue be salient to Canadians. So, Tonda, taking the point that Stuart made there, but we also heard from Cody Blois the liberal critique, which is like, well, where where are the conservatives on the environment? Um, I'm not going to repeat his choice words, but his <laughs> suggestion that they, they don't care. We've heard from Pierre Polyev. Well, listen, technology is going to be the answer, green lighting, green projects. Do you think the Conservatives have to put more meat on the bone? Well, it depends, you know, on who you listen to. Stephen Harper thinks that Pierre Polyev doesn't have to put any meat on those bones, those policy bones, before the next election. All their job is to do is to oppose the government and sort of wait for it to fall. But I think that on climate especially given the last number of years and the impact that a lot of Canadians have seen in wildfires, floods, hurricanes, you name it, that they do want to know that a party does have a plan for climate action. And that is one area where there's not a lot of meat on the bones in the Conservative policy yet. Yes, they want to kill the carbon pricing scheme. But I think, you know, to go out and argue that they would support technology and innovation and carbon capture and storage and small nuclear reactors, I mean, that's going to require a lot of selling. And it won't get you to where you need to go on climate. I want to stick with you, Tonda, for a, a different topic that is also creating a lot of, I mean, it's creating conversation around the world, but certainly an interesting conversation mm. within the Liberal Caucus, which is uh, what is happening in the Middle East right now. About two dozen Liberals signed a letter that called on the Prime Minister to demand a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. That is offside uh, with where the government is on this issue. How significant are all those signatures? You know, look, it's one of the first public, uh, I guess, step backs from formal liberal policy that we've seen this caucus do. And there are other MPs who are also now adding their names to that call. Is it a significant breach or does it reveal uh, a significant gap in the confidence those MPs have in Trudeau as a leader? I'm not sure we can read it that way, at least from the ones I've spoken to um, about their signatures on that document. They very strongly feel that they're reflecting constituent concerns in many cases. And in other cases, they very strongly are affected by the searing images of civilian deaths in, in Gaza right now. And so calling for a ceasefire seems like a safe political thing to do, but it's also um, not as nuanced as this government wants to put forward its position as. This government wants to stand by Israel's right to defend itself militarily, and a ceasefire assumes that Israel would stop altogether its military actions. And in the eyes of the Liberal government, uh, the Trudeau cabinet, that's not where this government wants to put its support. It's still standing by Israel's right to defend itself and conduct its military campaign 
after humanitarian pauses. Stuart, Tonda raises an important point about reflecting the opinions of constituents. And I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on how we might think or talk about this. On the one hand, it is a split on an important issue that is uh, subject to a lot of, a lot of passions. A lot of people care deeply about this across the country. We want MPs to reflect what's happening in their ridings. Should we be talking about this as a division? Is it a good thing, a bad thing that we're seeing this this split? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the old Edmund Burke question is, do you get your judgment or the will of your constituents once you're an MP? And, uh, you know, I think that if you are the prime minister right now, I think you probably understand where they're coming from. And I think also you may think if that's all I have to deal with, I'm pretty happy right now because things are going to change. We're about to enter a new phase of this conflict. And the hard part for the prime minister might have been that first phase. Israel's going to go into Gaza. If it's a ground campaign, it's going to be brutal urban warfare. And the new thing that's going to happen is all of these images and videos that are made on GoPros are going to be up on YouTube and Twitter. And I wonder if we could have even fought World War II under those conditions where, you know, it's a war that everyone's behind. But when you see the reality of war, it's hard for normal people to support it. It's hard to say, yes, we should keep doing this when you see those kinds of images. So I think where the liberals would prefer to be is supporting Israel, but urging restraint, which I think is where their sweet spot is. And I think that's maybe why they jumped so quickly on the hospital bombing before all the facts were in. I think they wanted to switch to that phase where it wasn't unfettered support for Israel. It was cautious support for Israel. The new phase of this conflict, if it's as brutal as it could be, um, it could actually get hard for Pierre Polyev, who's in pretty confidently in Israel's favor and won't move off that. But I, I wonder if Canadian general opinion may shift in such a way as this goes on that it becomes hard for him even to maintain that. We've already seen an indication of that. We've already seen numbers that show that Conservative supporters are also split just as Liberal supporters are on the question of Israel and whether it's unqualified support for Israel or not. So it's, it's, it's a tricky question for both main party leaders, I'd say. Tonda, do you think it matters in terms of Canada's voice in the world to have some of the MPs in the caucus of the governing party being offside with the leadership? I don't think that many people think that that's the voice of the Canadian government. I think that we've seen many other parliaments divided over similar questions. I think that the Trudeau government is still speaking for Canada in the eyes of his counterparts on the world stage and other countries. However, he has to be, I think, a little bit clearer some days on where he stands. Okay, we're going to have to leave the conversation there. Thank you both so much for making time today. Thank you. Tonda McCharles and Stuart Thompson. Lots more coming up on the House Podcast. I'm Catherine Cullen, and you're listening to The House from CBC Radio. Still to come on the program... Alberta says pretty much everyone else is getting it wrong when it comes to fighting drug addiction. Why the province won't call it a toxic drug crisis, but is going all in on building more treatment centres. But first, last week we asked for your opinion about the Quebec government's decision to double tuition fees for out-of-province university students. Our senior producer, Jennifer Chevalier, has been going through your emails and she joins me now. Hey, Jennifer. Hey. So what did listeners say? Oh, so much. A number of parents were really upset. Craig Charnock's grade 12 daughter had just been to visit Concordia and McGill, and now he says she won't even be applying there. Mm. Terry Sorensen is from Saskatoon, and when I connected with her over Zoom, she was drinking from a big McGill mom mug. Uh, So here's her take. 
My daughter dreamed of going to school and living in Montreal since she was 10 years old. She started late French immersion in grade six so she could learn and speak French to make sure her dream could come true. There'd be no way she could attend McGill with the new tuition, which is so unfair to a child who worked so hard and has taken measures to ensure she knew French and was bilingual. This measure is not, in my opinion, a way to protect the French language. The students want to learn French from my daughter's experience. And the feedback goes on. Jan Wisniewski in Montreal called the move mean-spirited. James Hale in Ottawa called it extraordinarily short-sighted. And finally, um, the Quebec tuition move, plus the story we did about Alberta considering leaving the CPP, prompted Brian McLean in St. John, New Brunswick to write, The question is whether Canada is a country or just a collection of various regions that merely tolerate each other. Ouch. Okay, well, thank you for this, Jennifer, and thanks to everybody who wrote in. It was Brain Cancer Awareness Day earlier this week. The federal government estimates that every day 27 people are diagnosed with brain tumors. Some go abroad for treatments they can't get here at home, hoping to extend their lives and their quality of life. Among them, Michael Cormican. But his story is unique. In July, he became the first person to access a new brain cancer treatment at home in Canada, even though it's not approved here yet. The CBC's Michaela Van Kooten spoke to Michael's family in Lethbridge, Alberta, and brings us his story. So it was around the end of October, beginning of November 2021, when my dad first like, really became aware of some issues that were happening for him. David Cormican remembers when his father realized that something might be wrong. It was mainly in terms of like recall, you know, for people's names or certain facts or dates, that type of thing. So he ended up going into his doctors to sort of see what was going on. And, you know, they tested for COVID and it wasn't that. And then they just sort of ruled it as like, oh, it's just the flu, you know, go home, rest it off, take two weeks. If it still persists, come back and see us. And of course, it still persisted. And then after Christmas, my dad sort of started over the next two months, it just started declining rapidly. There was just days where he would just sort of sit there and stare on the couch, you know, and wouldn't really want to do much of anything. David lives in Toronto. After Valentine's Day last year, his siblings told him, come home. My mom and my brothers took my dad to the hospital, to emergency, to have him checked out because he was just going into all sorts of failure. That's where they gave him a scan, realized it's a tumor that was in his brain. And not only was it a tumor, it was a tumor the size of a baseball. Michael Cormican was diagnosed with glioblastoma multiform, or GBM. It's among the most common and aggressive forms of brain cancer. Gord Downey of the Tragically Hip and NDPMP Paul Dewar both died of the disease. According to Brain Cancer Canada, most people survive, on average, only 15 to 18 months after diagnosis. When CBC learned of Michael's story, he was no longer well enough to speak due to painful mouth ulcers caused by the chemotherapy he received. Michael's family is telling his story for him. Even before surgery, the prognosis was not good, you know. He might not walk again, he might not ever speak again, all these sort of things, right? So you go from like worst case doomsday scenarios to, you know, and palliative care is probably only months away. The family found out about a new brain cancer therapy called DCVAX. It's an immunotherapy that's gone through global clinical trials and has been shown to prolong a patient's life. It's available through private clinics abroad, including in the UK. 
but Health Canada has yet to approve it for use here. It wasn't because we didn't believe in the standard of care or anything like that. It was just this was an extra piece of ammunition in our arsenal to treat our father. And it wouldn't just extend our father's life, it would extend his quality of life. They quickly tracked down a doctor in London, England, who could give the vaccine to Michael, a vaccine made from Michael's own white blood cells. Over a period of 14 months, Michael traveled to London for vaccine injections five times. Every day was leaps and bounds better than the one prior. Just in terms of his spirit, his vitality, the words he was using, the formation of sentences, his ability to have full conversations with people started to return. But each trip cost the family thousands of dollars in travel and accommodation, not to mention the cost of the treatment itself. The initial cost for the vaccine program is £150,000 for the first year. That's approximately 250000 Canadian dollars, costs that are not covered by the Alberta health care insurance plan. The Cormican family are not the only Canadians who felt pushed to go abroad and pay thousands out of pocket for life-extending treatments. I've heard of people getting second mortgages. I've heard of people who have had to cash out their investments using their savings. Some have started GoFundMe pages. Angela Scalisi is the chair of Brain Cancer Canada, an organization that raises money and gives out grants for research. Scalisi knows the urgency this disease creates for the families of GBM patients. Her brother also has brain cancer. This tumor is invading his brain. It invades in such a demonic way. My grandmother had breast cancer. She had a lumpectomy. She did do chemo and radiation. She lived until, you know, another 20 years and died of old age at 84. I can tell you that cancer did not do to her what it's doing to my brother. Scalisi says she hears from many families who will do whatever it takes to buy their loved one just a little more time with a better quality of life. If it's offering the same life expectancy, if not more so, then why not do a treatment that's not going to leave you bedridden? and not going to leave you paralyzed, and not leave you cognitively impaired, and not leave you blind, right? And not leave you in palliative care. Go after the treatment that will allow you to spend, if it's 15 to 18 months, traveling and living as fully as you possibly can and feeling well while you do it. For 14 months, Michael's family says his tumor shrunk and his quality of life improved, but it didn't last. The tumor began to grow again. By the time the Cormicans were told a second surgery wouldn't be possible, Michael's health was too frail for him to travel to the UK to continue vaccine treatments. The family only had one option, get the vaccine to Canada through Health Canada's special access program. They applied for permission to bring DC Vax to Canada. Three months later, they got an answer. Getting it here is great. We put a lot of hard work and effort into it, so... We were happy that it was finally approved and that it can be administered in Canada. We're kind of paving the way for others. It's July, and Gloria Cormican is with her husband at the doctor's office in Lethbridge, Alberta. Their application to Health Canada is successful. Michael Cormican is about to become the first person to have this new brain cancer vaccine administered in Canada. Dr. Kegler, Michael's family doctor, will do the injection. Well, I have to admit I've been terrified because I did not want to be the link in the chain that uh, kind of fell apart here at the end. And so it's been, that, that's been worrisome for me. However, it's quite exciting to be a part of something that's so 
new and innovative and we've talked about this kind of gene therapy forever. Quite amazing. We're in the future. This is the future. Michael's sitting in his wheelchair, Gloria at his side. It's time. I'm just flicking it to try and get the air bubbles out. I'm sorry. Doing okay? Okay. That's it. Michael's eldest daughter, David's sister, is a radiologist in Australia. Dr. Aileen Cormican flew home for her father's historic injection in Alberta. Her medical training was instrumental in getting her father the new vaccine. If we didn't keep pushing and me asking, hey, what about this one? Can we try this thing? We would have never gotten there. So a lot of it was, again, being our own advocates um, in the system. And you shouldn't have to be. The family says the whole process has cost them approximately $400,000. Aileen says the costs charged by drug manufacturers are valid. Yes, the cost of the drug is legitimate in that, and they have to pay for the costs and the recovery because, you know, they would have probably spent the last 20 years and sunk several millions into it. And that's where, over time, it becomes, you know, affordable in biotech as it becomes, you know, gross manufactured and en masse and cheaper and whatever. But that shouldn't be a right learning step for Canadians, and that will be because we had two family friends during this last 17 months acquaintances that reached out to us to ask about the immunotherapy drug and I tried to help guide them on what they could look for you know trials and things and gave them all this stuff on this and then they ended up not doing it in the end because they couldn't afford it. Eileen wants more people to be able to find government programs that may help them afford new cancer treatments to extend the lives of their loved ones. There should be more work around it, to be honest, in Canada. Like, there's good things we do, but there's a lot more we could do as a system to increase accessibility for patients and people. Full stop. But despite her father's trailblazing, this treatment isn't available in Canada yet. Advent Bioservices, the manufacturer of DC Vax, wouldn't confirm if they've applied for approval in Canada, even though Canada is one of the countries where global clinical trials took place. Health Canada says they can't compel a company to bring their drug to Canada or approve a drug before a company has applied to bring it here, even if it's been approved for use in other countries. Angela Scalisi of Brain Cancer Canada points the finger at the government's stringent approval process as a possible reason why companies may not apply for approval in Canada. I think the conversation has to be why aren't people, more people, applying to Health Canada for approval of novel treatments or technology? And I think that there's just far too rigorous, uh, perhaps, a criteria that it makes it impossible for these manufacturers to apply. Maybe the whole entire process is discouraging. I think the proof is in the fact that we haven't seen a new drug for brain cancer in 20 years. This injection on Canadian soil made history, and David says it gave his dad hope and kept him going. But it wasn't enough. Michael Cormican died not long after the treatment, and just weeks short of meeting his new grandson. If the vaccine was already available in Canada prior to us getting the approval for it, the the difference it would have made, I believe, is that we wouldn't have missed schedules. We wouldn't have had significant delays. And so every day, every hour you delay that injection is extra days that the tumor gets to grow. Still, David says the family's journey to buy his dad more time was worth it. 
the fact that, you know, my dad has doubled and tripled, quadrupled the original expectations. Standard of care is fine, but the vaccine is great. I can say that my father, he never lost his dignity in any of this. That story from the CBC's Michaela Van Kooten. I went up to Parliament Hill to ask the health minister about the slow approval process for novel treatments and what it means for Canadian families. Here's what Mark Holland told me. First of all, I have enormous sympathy uh, for any family that is in a circumstance where their health is compromised and they're searching for solutions. I, I can't imagine what they're going through. I can't imagine how stressful that is. I think from a systems perspective here, one of the things that we've been really well served by is Health Canada is seen as one of the best agencies in the world in, in terms of ensuring both the safety and the efficacy of the drugs that are approved. And it, it's um, when you're in a desperate situation, you want that drug right away. Health Canada needs to ensure the rigor of its process is such that we don't make mistakes in the rush to find solutions. Now, by the same token, uh, particularly when somebody is in a really compromised position where their life is at risk, we do have to, to think about uh, that balancing of those risks. And that's something that I'm talking to the department about, about finding, uh, well, I see your reaction, and, and my response is, is that that's a process of continual process improvement. Would that mean in some cases harmonizing our standards with uh, the EU or the FDA? Well, I think that, you know, we, we always want to look at how we cooperate with other jurisdictions and eliminate um, duplication. Uh, we also understand that other jurisdictions might make different decisions. They may more lean on supporting the market and, uh, you know, economic considerations instead of safety considerations. And as you can imagine, if, if we get it wrong, if we end up approving something that we shouldn't approve and it ends up being used by Canadians and there's an injurious uh, impact and we failed to protect Canadians, it won't matter that another jurisdiction also got it wrong, people are going to fairly ask the question why we got it wrong. So we have to maintain that rigor in our process, uh, but looking at what other jurisdictions are doing, building on their science rather than being duplicative is certainly something that we need to continue doing. Health Minister Mark Holland. The last few weeks we've been looking into the toxic drug crisis in Canada. Today, we're exploring legislation some provinces have adopted to deal with it, legislation that some others would also like to see. You take a walk down on Livingston, you take a walk downtown, it's like zombies. They're walking around, they're lost, but they're our children. We can't leave them down there. No, no. We gotta help them. There needs to be a law that I can take her and help her and put her somewhere that she can't sign herself out of. That is a Newfoundland mother speaking at a rally in St. John's this past summer. There are calls in that province to introduce involuntary treatment for addiction. On the other side of the country, Alberta already has a program that allows parents and guardians to ask a court to order a child into treatment for up to 15 days at a time. And the province is considering legislation that would force adults into treatment as well. It's part of Alberta's approach to the current drug crisis. The province is spending millions on treatment centres, but the Premier says she does not believe in safer supply. To talk about Alberta's approach, Dan Williams is Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Welcome to the House. Thank you, Catherine. Very happy to be here. To start, I'd like you to help us understand why go all in on treatment and not give people a range of options? Well, I 
I think it is important to consider the nature of what these tragic situations are. The deadly disease of addiction is just that, it's, it's deadly. When addiction runs its course, we know there are only two ends. Given time, either it ends in pain, misery, and death, or the addiction comes to treatment, recovery, and a second lease on life. There's no third option. And so we have lots and lots of tools in our toolkit. And Alberta is building this Alberta model, the continuum of care that allows us to meet people where they're at but bring them into recovery. So we have lots of other uh, aspects of what we look at, everything from our virtual opioid dependency program, which is same-day medical treatment access for evidence-based medication for what they call OAT or opioid agonist therapy, so that's Suboxone and Methadone. But every bit of our system is being geared towards recovery. So let, let's dig in a little bit deeper to what you're doing on the recovery front. Your province has promised to build 11 treatment centres. The last I had heard, there was only, I believe, one that has been opened so far. So how long do you expect it to take to fully get this Alberta model up and running? Great question. And, and it is a long process in the sense that we're starting from scratch. Within Canada, and I'd say North America generally, maybe the whole West, the monopolist view on policy surrounding addiction has been going further and further down one road. And Alberta is taking a different tack. Are you saying everyone, everyone's getting it wrong, Minister? I mean, that seems to be inherent. I'm saying for a long time, we, we only looked at one possible solution and we didn't seriously consider as a society what it takes to overcome addiction. And I'd put Alberta along with many others in that camp where we were not seriously considering what is the policy outcome if we don't get people recovery? If we don't try and help people who are in that deadly cycle of addiction, we, we will continue to see more addiction, more pain, more overdoses, more death. The way to break it inevitably, and it's, I, I'm, I don't know any other alternative, it's treatment and recovery, especially when we talk about the nature of the opioid and really hard drugs like methamphetamine. I do want to get into the sort of either or that you're setting up here, but I, I just want to make sure that we fully grasp what it is you're doing on the treatment front, because we have been talking about this issue for some time on the show. And, you know, everyone we speak to agrees on the importance of treatment. Mm -hmm. You just said it's a long process, uh, mm -hmm. but you're also saying that this is what's needed to, in your view, fix this issue is this massive emphasis on treatment. So how long are we talking here before you really right. have realized this vision? So uh, Alberta's planned 11. The vast majority of those are in the process of being built or the contracts and logistics being set up so we can get those projects delivered. Two are currently open. It does take time to get it going. And I need everyone to understand as well, once we have the recovery spaces, my goal is to build to the point where there's no longer a wait list. In Alberta, you could wait anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of weeks to get into treatment. That's too long because when somebody decides that they want to get treatment, it's a short window often. Uh, because of the nature of, a, of an addiction, especially an opioid one, there's a certain hold. Uh, you're compelled in so many ways physiologically to continue looking for that high. So if somebody has a moment of clarity... So, sir, let me ask you, though, when, when someone before that moment of clarity, when someone is in that moment where they are still deeply in the throes of addiction and they do not feel ready to seek that treatment... We heard from people who are working with people in active addiction that what they need is something to keep them away from the toxic 
drug supply. The mm-hmm. drugs that have things in them that they are not expecting, which is leading to the dramatic rise we're seeing in overdose deaths. So why not have alternatives for people who aren't ready for treatment yet? Well, first, Catherine, I have to challenge that phrase toxic drug supply. The truth is, is that all of these drugs are toxic. All of them lead to overdose, whether we're talking about hydromorphone, which is included in the so-called safe or safer supply. It's not safe. So Um, when the Public Health Agency of Canada says toxicity of supply continues to be a major driver of the overdose crisis, when mm -hmm. they say that um, 81% of all deaths involve fentanyl, you just dispute the premise? I believe that those individuals are seeking a high because of their addiction. If we replace the problem of describing it as a toxic drug supply with instead the problem is addiction, which is a biological disease which needs treatment, the solution ends up being recovery. What those individuals are doing when they talk about a toxic drug supply is they're activists and they're advocating for a safe drug supply as the alternative. They are not neutral in their argument. They're saying that if we provide high-powered opioids like hydromorphone, which for the record is five times more powerful than street heroin, then that will solve the problem. Because the problem is the addiction itself, the addiction is the disease, and that is sadly what's killing so many of our family members, I can tell you now it will not solve a problem. Okay, let's explore further this question about how you are dealing with the recovery aspect of this. There is a program in Alberta where children can be forced into treatment by the court for up to 15 days at a time. Your government is also looking at uh, introducing involuntary treatment for adults as well. Some addiction experts have said involuntary treatment doesn't work. Here's Dr. Monty Ghosh, an addictions medicine doctor who does research at the universities of Calgary and Alberta. He says it's hard to say whether or not that will be effective, but I want you to listen to his main concern. I think the biggest fear that I have is that it could potentially re-traumatize individuals. If we're forcing treatment to people, if we're forcing injections into them, if we're holding them against their will, if we're essentially incarcerating them, would that not lead to further trauma? And we know that trauma, again, is a direct link to causing more harms to the population, which then directly links to increased substance use. So how would you respond to his concern that involuntary treatment might do more harm than good? I would say, first of all, that we have precedent in the Mental Health Act in Alberta, and every single province and territory has parallel legislation that allows involuntary treatment or treatment orders for individuals with mental health issues that are very severe. And the criterion, in a legal sense, within that act in Alberta, which is constitutional, which there's no dispute that it's needed, is when someone is a danger to themselves or others. That's the same criterion and legal test I am proposing for this legislation. When we're talking about compassion intervention, if somebody is a danger to themselves or others because of their drug use, then I have a couple of thoughts. The alternative to that treatment is harm. It's harm to themselves. It is not at all compassionate in any serious way to leave somebody, maybe a brother or a sister of ours, maybe an indigenous woman from my northern constituency who's found her way to Edmonton, in minus 40 weather, suffers from a psychosis, whether it's induced from the addiction or existed as a pre-existing concurrent mental health issue, living rough on the streets or in the bush. And she is in absolute agony and pain because of the, the nature of her, her total capture by this addiction and the drug that fuels it to say, that's some lifestyle or I'm afraid to help you. The alternative to compassion intervention 
is if somebody has gone through every other alternative and they have no recovery capital left and they are danger to themselves, overdosing potentially multiple times a week, potentially creating permanent brain damage from hypoxia of a lack of oxygen coming to their brain because of the overdoses over and over again, potentially danger to others. At that point, the alternative to living on the street and that death or that prison that they live in of their addiction is what I'm comparing the policy option to. And I don't know any reasonable Canadian that really thinks that it's compassionate or reasonable to leave those vulnerable Albertans and Canadians on the street. I take your point that um, everyone, I think, across the country would not like to see those people living on the street. I I do think there's a debate about how to deal with that, but we only have a moment left. And there's one more thing I would like to ask you, um, because the Alberta model is something that's got a a lot of attention from the federal conservatives here in Ottawa. Would you support a conservative federal government pulling all its funding from harm reduction to focus on treatment? What I'd support is centering the system around recovery. I have all sorts of of tools within the provincial, Alberta Provincial Toolkit that people would call harm reduction. The virtual opioid dependency program, DOORS, the app for those who are using, um, lots and lots of different... Would you include supervised consumption sites in that? those Those are in the Alberta system, and I think most people currently consider that harm reduction. I'm not coming at this, and I want to be really clear, I'm not coming at this from a radical perspective or an ideological perspective. My concern is it's very, very clear that what we're doing isn't working as a society. Alberta has very good evidence and arguments to show that recovery is the only way out the other end of this, and that includes a wide spectrum of tools. I want anybody on my team left, right, um, from any part of the country, north, south, east, or west, that wants to see recovery for those who are suffering from that deadly disease of addiction. If instead your goal is to continue facilitating with no attempt to get them better, without moving them towards recovery, without making that the center of the system, then I will oppose that because I think we have a moral obligation to those who suffer and to the public safety of our communities to say that we won't stand for that. We're going to have to leave the discussion there. I appreciate your time today, Minister. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on The House. Dan Williams is Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Well, that is it for us this week. Our crew on The House is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. Thanks also this week to AC Rowe of the Audio Doc Unit. I am Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.